Thank you so much for joining me today on the Living Room Disciple Podcast. I can't wait to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Ralph Enloe Jr., who wrote a book called Servant for All, a book on biblical servant leadership and It's fantastic, which is why I'm so excited to interview him today. He's uh, recently retired, but he's been in uh, higher education administration for over 45 years. And during that time, he's emphasized quite a bit on Christian education and Christian leadership. And he's been drawn into that deeper conversation about leadership and what does biblical leadership look like really by the, the models of leadership, good and bad, that he's seen. And so we get to flesh out a little bit of that today in our conversation as well as just honestly have him do a little mentorship of me as I myself am growing as a leader. So I really am excited for you all to listen to this amazing conversation with Ralph. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Living Room Disciple podcast, where discipleship finds a home. Ralph, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure, Phil. Thank you. Well, I I ran across one of your books just a few months ago. I I soaked it right up, and I mentioned it earlier here on the podcast in the introduction, but I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, it's called Servant of All, and I I've learned something in my wide reading. Usually when a book's on the smaller side, it's on the more powerful side. I've just noticed that. Uh, and so I guess I want to go ahead and before we get into the book and before we get into this idea of servant for all, tell us a little bit about your history in academia and what brought you to studying leadership. Uh, you know, I joke sometimes that uh, to borrow a phrase from uh Bill Bright and the Four Spiritual Laws, my my most significant model and mentor as an educational leader was a man by the name of Robertson McQuilkin. Mm-hmm. He was president of the institution where I served, Columbia International University. And uh, I joke that Robertson loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> he, I've, uh, I've known a few people like that. Yeah. He saw me as a student. Uh, when I finished graduate school, he grabbed me and, and asked mm. me to come to work with him. And 30 years later, I was still there at the same institution, That's although awesome. he had retired sometime previously. But mm. that really launched my career in Christian higher education. That was not uh, the direction I necessarily was thinking about. Mm. But it turns out that that was the calling that the Lord gave to me. And uh, it's been a very fulfilling calling. So I've served uh, a lot in administration, more than teaching. Mm-hmm. I've always taught some, but uh, I've been a, a chief academic officer. And then the latter part of my career, I, I led an association of Christian colleges that specialize in ministerial and professional leadership education. Uh, Leading people who are teaching yeah. biblical leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is that kind of like being a doctor to doctors where they're the worst <laughs> patients? You know what I mean? Like maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh cert, yeah, I guess I, it's the it's pretty thrilling to be a multiplier. Uh yeah. and to be an yeah. encourager. I think I think I love to be an encourager. And that's mm. one of the things that the Lord's called me to, I think. And so it's been good, very fulfilling. So you're you're in academia and you're you're taking a lot of these administrative roles and 
you, you know, your books on leadership. So at some point in time, you've really become focused on this idea of leadership, on seeing other people who are leading. So tell me a little bit about maybe, and you talk about this in your book a little bit, tell me a little bit about some of the positive and negative examples of leadership that you experienced in your professional life and your you know, ministerial life and that type of thing. Yeah, I think, well, certainly on the negative side, uh, there's a lot of heartbreak with uh, moral failures and things like that, that, that uh, they seem to have proliferated in recent years, but I'm not sure that's really true. At least they're uh, coming to the surface in a way they didn't used yeah, to. Yeah, I, I think maybe that's the case, Phil. Yeah. Um, positively, you know, beginning with my, my grandfather, who was a godly a minister and a leader, a district superintendent in the church that we were part of. And then my parents, of course, uh, had a lot of godly models there, people that loved the Lord passionately, that uh, walked the way of holiness and so on. And um, then as I got older, again, uh, I, I mentioned earlier Robertson McQuilkin and his influence yeah. on my life as a, as a servant leader. Uh, one of the most brilliant people I've ever known, but unassuming and um, un, un, the opposite of self-aggrandizing. Yeah. Um, and so I had many, many blessed examples of that um, over the years um, in all different spheres, certainly in Christian higher education, but also mm -hmm. in missionary endeavor, church work and um, and so on. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit. I, I don't think I intended to go here, but I think this is really important. You, you made a passing reference to having served under leaders with moral failures. Yeah. And. You know, we don't need to go into any of the details of anybody else's story. I don't think that's helpful. But I know a lot of our listeners are going to be nodding their heads. They've resonated, right? Unfortunately, many of us have yeah. served. In, we've been a we've just been a practitioner at a church, or we're just attending someplace. Or whatever it is, you have someone you look up to, someone who's on a stage, someone who has the corner office, someone who should be more like Christ than anyone else in the building. It would it would seem. Uh, and that's another conversation, but that's just the, that's the impression we get. And then, yeah, then there's some, you know, adultery or their, you know, uh, embezzlement or whatever, whatever the flavor of the day is, it feels like. Mm -hmm. That's obviously the catalyst for a lot of people to leave ministry, to stop serving in ministry, to leave a church. How does a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, and maybe a leader process through the moral failures of someone they looked up to? I know it's like a huge question and we could do a whole podcast on that, but yeah. I guess I, there's just something in me that wants to know based yeah. on the experiences you've had, how have you, have you yeah. stayed in ministry this whole time? Well, a couple, well, three things to say, three observations I would make. One, uh, I think the moral failures of two kinds, there are some that are pretty spectacular. That is, yeah. there, there's something that's exposed that was hidden or there's a major, uh, fall, if you will. Sure. Um, but the second kind is there's an awful lot of what Jerry Bridges called in his book, respectable sins that are, that can be very characteristic of leaders. That uh, is very interesting name. <laughs> um, I, I need to know more. What's a respectable sin? Well, he wrote a book about respectable sins and, and, uh, so things like, uh, 
arrogance and pride and gossip uh, and all these kinds of things. Things that yeah. we think of, they're not icky, they're, mm. they're, uh, but they're, they, they are deeply um, unbecoming of the Lord and so on. And frankly, there's an awful lot of Christian leaders for whom people make excuses. Yeah. Um, that, uh, frankly, some Christian leaders are insufferable. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're extremely autocratic and condescending and spiteful mm-hmm. and vindictive and all the things that mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of a tendency to say, well, he's a great leader, but... Uh, yeah. And, um, and then insert some phrase that inherently yeah. makes them not a great leader. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That, that really diminishes. Yeah. Uh, you know, here's the, here, here's the third thing. Uh, first of all, it's the older I get, the more shocking it is to see how much there is in me. That's, yeah. that's, uh, grievous to the Lord. So it's, uh, and and that leads to the the other corollary, and that is, isn't it amazing that the Lord chooses to use any of us? Mm. We're so broken and flawed. Uh, so I don't think the leaders the Lord uses. Well, first of all, the Lord uses all kinds of people. That doesn't excuse mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. their behavior. Um, he does it in spite of us, but. Uh, also, it's a call for us to not justify uh, things that are not worthy of him, to continue mm-hmm. to, to be on the quest to grieve about our sin and to ask the Lord to help us to be models that are worthy of, of him. Mm-hmm. Greatest leader of all is God himself, right? As modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm hearing to some extent, and this is actually what's helped me as well, but I, I like the way you're wording it. There's almost this level of, of A, just remembering your own. There's a level, at least for me, when I've experienced situations like that, where I, I both, I acknowledge two things to be true. One is that what, what was done was terrible and it shouldn't have been done. And the other is that myself and my own sin nature and equally deplorable in many ways that maybe others would just call respectable sins, um, you know, and that my arrogance and my pride, my desire to draw attention to myself, which is like really tempting and things like podcasting and whatnot, um, that that's just in some, you know, really, although maybe it doesn't have the same cultural ramifications, it's such as it, it's, it's equally as spiritually damning. Um, as as maybe uh you know embezzlement or adultery and stuff and again there's differences we don't need to go into all those differences but it's just having that remembering of like man like this is that humility i think does for some odd reason draw me closer to the lord and inherently closer to his church yeah yeah so you're so you're studying leadership you're looking at all these different models of leadership and that's kind of drawing you to some conclusions, which leads us to your book, which yeah. I will absolutely plug. So what a lot of listeners may not actually know is I have a master's in leadership. And, um, you know, although I podcast by night, by day, I'm, I'm doing training development, much of which is leadership development. Mm. And I've read, Ralph, I've read 
a whole lot of leadership books. And just like a lot of other um, genres of content out there, you can take really wide, 80% of the books fall into the same category and say essentially the same thing, if not more than 80%. Mm -hmm. And so when I was uh, perusing for my next book on leadership, um, and this came up, I don't remember where, an article I was reading, um, I think it was an article about the top 10 books a pastor should have on their bookshelf. Well, and I know, I'll, I'll have to send you the link. Yeah, this, yeah, this person was talking. Yeah. Was that? <laughs> and that, that I'm, I'm not, I could be sold by a good book cover and a book, good title. Judge me if you want. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so yeah, so I read Servant of All. And there's this, uh, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see this pretty amazing graphic for the book title or the book cover. And I remember looking at that and know, you know, already knowing that the book was going to be on servant leadership. And it's one of the topics that I've written about. And generally when I write about servant leadership, my emphasis tends to be that what we're calling servant leadership today is not servant leadership. That is this term that's in, it's in vogue. Scroll LinkedIn for five minutes. You'll see 18 posts on what servant leadership is, except it never really defines servant leadership. And it kind of just hijacks the term for whatever that particular author. So I really enjoyed reading through your book on your take. And so I'll just kind of ask for our listeners, go ahead and, and hit some of the high points. Like when you, when you look at good leadership, when you think of the leadership of Christ, what are some of the things that you really take away as what defines genuinely biblical servant leadership? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, to say that the, the, the Bible is sort of ambivalent or you might say paradoxical about leadership. Yes. On the one hand, Leadership's everywhere in the Bible. Uh, my friend, on the other Steve hand, Moore, it's never there. <laughs> my friend Steve Moore, you know, did a catalog. He spent five years cataloging every leadership conversation he could identify in the Bible, where there was a leader and a follower mm -hmm. and a situation. And uh, you might be shocked to find out that he cataloged one thousand and ninety. Wow. Okay, that's more than I expected. It's pervasive. It's more than I expected. Yeah. So there's a, the the Bible has a lot to say about leaders and leadership and so on. The other thing, though, is that the, the vocabulary in the Bible is radically different from worldly vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And the word clusters that the Bible uses about leadership are basically two, servant and shepherd. Mm. Um, it uses the word servant in two ways. One, in a way that we might better understand as steward, that is, a person who mm -hmm. is the servant of the Lord, therefore responsible to the Lord, accountable to the Lord. Sure. So it has to do with accountability. And then the other is uh, in the in the case here in in that I emphasize in the book, and that is the subordination, the subordinate position of the leader relative to the people they serve. Um. And so Jesus says, you know, you define greatness as top down. I define greatness as underneath, bottom up. Mm -hmm. um, that's the nature of leadership that Jesus is calling us to. That I'm in agreement. I, I think a lot of people would nod their heads at first. I think where I see in our culture, and I'll emphasize in our Christian organizations, 
is that taking actionable steps to make that subordination a reality becomes, I I don't think it's complicated, but it it becomes difficult. Um, There's a lot of simple things that are difficult. Um, But one of the ones that stands out to me and that I've thought about a lot, and so I I have opinions, Ralph, that I, I need I need someone wiser to help me curate. So <laughs> I'm going to put out thoughts that I've been thinking well, about for some time. Then. There you go. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I have some things I'm thinking about. So you, you tell me your thoughts. So one of the, the examples, though, of where I wonder is when we look at, you know, a church organization or college or Christian ministry, I think a lot of leaders at the very top would say that they either want to be or identify as being servant leadership, you know, servant leaders. Um, But then when you look at who has authority in the organization, then when you look at how pay is distributed to the organization, then you you get where going with this? It doesn't seem that the job descriptions, to use like a very American idea, and the pay scales are aligning with this idea, you know, if, if Christ himself was to, to you know, be, be incarnate here in 2023 America and he was to be, you know, a, a CEO of some large Christian organization, would he be the highest paid employee or the lowest paid employee? You, you hear I'm going with this? So help me kind of like as as a younger man who's, who's studying leadership and is leading uh, my own, you know, small kind of thing here at The Living Room Disciple. How do we take these ideas of biblical leadership and allow them to intersect with the culture they need to operate in today? I, I think you just put your finger on the issue, and that is uh, we operate within the framework of a culture that has certain apparatus and certain reward structures and things like that. I'm not sure that we can uh, easily dismiss all that and and. I, I, having said that, I do think the Lord calls us to be radical. Yeah. Um, one area that I'll just mention, and you can explore this further if you want, but um, some years ago, I developed a conceptual framework about leadership that's sevenfold. So a lot of what I've seen written is, uh, about leadership sort of um, focuses on one or or two or three aspects of leadership, but I don't think it's as comprehensive as it needs to be. So I see as leadership as incarnational, relational, developmental, directional, ecological, situational, and doxological. So I want to just talk briefly about the last one, doxological. Okay. And what I, what I, how I would say that is that uh, for a, for a, godly person, for a person who's a Christ follower, then leadership should be primarily characterized by leading toward people toward God and with God. Um, And uh, one measure of that is the way we use power, Mm -hmm. the way we we handle power. Um, If you are a good leader, if you're a gifted leader, if you're a recognized leader, if you're a structurally positioned leader, power is going to accrue to you. I promise you, it will accrue to you. And the better you lead, the more power accrues to you. So I think the godly response to that is to do what God does with his power. He does two things with his power primarily. 
he s- distributes it and he serves with it. Mm-hmm. When you think about the the omnipotent God and you realize what the pattern of his power use is, he gives it away and he serves with it. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's that takes us a long way toward the kind of disposition the Lord means by servant leadership. There is no time in the Bible that I can think of that God uses his power in a way that benefits himself at all. Right. Even like the creation story, he's creating for the flourishing of humankind. It's self-expressive, but it's not self-referencing. It's not, uh, it's not intended to be, to be um, primarily serving himself. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but I, I, let's just say I imagine like a head pastor is going to listen to this. And say, yeah, but I'm, I'm doing that. I'm serving this congregation. I'm serving my staff. I'm, uh, I'm trying to give delegation authority over. Uh, what are some practical ways that I could go above and beyond? And for me, and I don't actually give people advice on this. I just want this noted. Normally, I just keep my mouth shut. Because I don't, I don't think I'm mature enough yet to really give advice. But in my, this this is the dialogue in my head. Okay, up here because I I have these conversations occasionally, and in my head, what I'm thinking to myself is, um, I I brought it up before, but I'll I'll bring it up again. Restructuring pay. You know, I do think that the way we, where we put our money is very indicative of our value system. It's very indicative of what we believe. It's a very theological uh, act um, to invest finances, your personal finances into something. It's it's living out um, your theology in in a very real way. But I think, not I think, I actually know for a fact that to say something like that, to tell a pastor, what if you took a pay cut and gave your janitor more money, right? Like what if your custodian made more money than you? There'd be a whole lot of arguments against that and, and arguments I could really sympathize with. Um, one of them, uh, you know, being some indication of you're looking at a socialized system that, you know, emphasizes a different value system. Long story short, is that even a good idea? Like, would I be in, in the would I be in biblical wisdom, Ralph, to give someone that type of advice? And if I did, how would you confront some of the difficult objections they might have to that? Well, again, apart from a sort of a radical uh, missionary kind of an organizational um, structure, you know, when when I first went to Columbia Bible College, when I first went to work there, um, their pay structure was was based on, was like a missionary pay structure based on family size. It had nothing to do with rank or status or whatever. I don't think a lot of people have ever heard that before. So can you just yeah. explain that really quick? Well, I don't think a lot so of people have been exposed the to that. The director of the physical plant had six kids. He got paid more than the president. Um, All right. So based so, on, on how many mouths you have to feed at home. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was, it was totally. I got four kids. I could get down with this, Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> Which a lot of mission. Well, there's a, this, we could really get into some bad stuff, you know, thinking about why the missionaries have four kids. <laughs> Because that's when your pay stops. You, when you get four, they don't start paying you anymore. Oh, uh, like caps out. That's a really out. cynical way to say it. But uh, and and I understand that I'm joking a little bit. But yeah, you know there are there 
let's put it this way. There is there are incentives in every system. Uh, yes, which I think is a big part of the problem. But continue on. Yeah. Continue on. Well, and so I think you can you can at least fight against what what has become in our culture an egregious level of runaway executive compensation. Yeah. Um, and you can say, look, we're going to, we have somewhere this has to stop. We got to stop this. I insist that this can't go there. So one way you can do it is say, we're going to limit the multiples of, of pay among our full-time employees. We're going to flatten the pay scale. Mm -hmm. If we don't completely abandon, go to a needs-based or family size based system, mm. you know, the, the, the degree of multiples between the lowest level of the salary scale and the highest level is not going to be 20 or 10. It might be three or four. Um, mm. Based on breadth of responsibility, the credentials that are required and everything, you can flatten it without completely blowing it up. So mm. that's just one thought. Um, so, and, and again, I think power and resources are going to accrue to leaders. So if you don't be deliberate about pushing those away, they will accrue to you without you asking for it. So as a leader is accruing this power, and this is happening a lot in churches right now, you know, we, it, most communities tend to have a few churches that tend to be the ones currently kind of like gathering congregants, you know, uh, yeah. j just because of lots of different reasons culturally, but we all tend to kind of move in a similar direction. Right. So whatever yeah. is the, the cool new kid yeah. on the block, yeah. uh, we hate to put it that way, but most of our church is it's internal church transition versus new converts. Yeah. So, you know, some pastor finds themselves with an ever growing congregation, um, more tithes coming in, more people wanting to know their opinion, more invitations to the, the community events, um, you know, more conversations with the local mayor or whatever. They're acquiring this power. And um, let's just say hypothetically, they work out the pay system in a way that's that's really godly. You know, whatever they feel led to, whether it's like leveling it or missionary-based pay or needs-based pay or something like that. Um, they feel like they've to the best of their human ability on earth have removed that as a primary factor hindering service leadership. What are some other areas that tend to trip people up in our culture of ministry here in the United States outside of pay? Yeah. Well, I, uh, privilege is, a, mm. you know, pay is, you know, just raw compensation is one thing, but privilege, um, mm. I, I mean, it goes, Frankly, you know, the most trivial level is, you know, reserve parking lots or mm. uh, various other forms of self-aggrandizement. Um, you know, I, I don't judge anybody who um, is, again, people are going to give you privileges and they're going to be justified. Yeah. But if you, if you start, if you start submitting to that regime... You're, it's going to be awful hard for you not to just keep justifying and justifying and justifying. Are you talking about things like um, someone says, hey, pastor, you know, I've got this boat. I wanted to see if you wanted to take it out on the weekend. Like, are you talking about that? Or you what do you well, what, give me? Give me a concrete example. Internal privileges. I mean, again, you know, uh, you know, to what extent uh, who has the, the, the choicest office, the, the pastor or the person mm -hmm. whose role? 
uh, requires it. Yeah. Is yeah. there the good coffee over where the leaders hang out? Yeah. Which sounds yeah. silly, but like, you know, I mean, I'm a coffee snob, so I'm <laughs> strong opinions. <laughs> yeah. So you can justify everything. Um, and, and again, I don't judge the motives of everybody. I would just say the cumulative effect of privilege is the same thing as the cumulative effect of pay uh, in terms of the way it, what it does to us and what it conveys to other people. So as a leader, you've, you've got to understand that all that stuff accrues to you. And if you don't take active measures to push it away, um, it could, you could easily find yourself feeling entitled. And I actually think that's where I notice the biggest difference between, I think, what the world consistently talks about with servant leadership so uh, and, and what I think biblical servant leadership is. So oftentimes the world talks about servant leadership, and I think this is true. I just don't think it's a whole story. And it's, it's advocating for your employees and your employees' needs. It's pushing authority down through the organization, giving decision-making ability to individuals who are lower on the you know, organizational hierarchy. And I think those are two elements of it. But honestly, they're elements that you can do without any heart change at all. Uh, so you can just, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm a natural delegator, Ralph. If someone, you know, I'm not going to micromanage because I'm too lazy. Like I'm just, I just trust you to do it in part because I just don't want to do it. Uh, you know, and so decision making, pushing down, that's easy for me. Um, and then things like advocating for employees. I, I've advocated for others and oftentimes walked out patting myself on the back because I'm just such a good guy. And so I'm really just creating more of a pride issue in my own soul as I do this very thing that I'm saying I'm doing because of Jesus. So, but it's this, what, but what I don't see is the conversation around servant leadership is in part the consistent ongoing denial of uh, compensation, privileges, uh, benefits uh, that goes without anyone knowing <laughs> that that's done in secret, right? The, the secret, like, I'm not going to take that. Um, I, I don't need that. I'm going to say no to that. And just that consistent habit of pushing away benefit after benefit after benefit. Are you, are you is this, is this kind of like, would you agree with that? Am, am I on the right track? Yeah, I, I do think, uh, yes, I, I do think it gets down to the heart level of the issue. Uh, and, you know, it occurs in every aspect of leadership. So if you just run through, you know, I would say incarnational leadership means that you lead more by, by who you are than anything you do. Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. uh, but the problem is with a leader, um, you can get away with a lot more than other people you get excused for things that you shouldn't get excused for so yeah. as a leader you will you refuse to excuse in yourself things that other people might excuse in you you ask mm -hmm. the lord to keep you tender and humble and so on relationally um, you can demand that people accommodate their relational style to yours or you can work hard to understand the relational styles and needs and preferences of others you can build a constellation of uh, people that are different from yourself, not clones, mm -hmm. and you can be relationally subordinate to the needs of others. Or you can do what most leaders do, and they say, well, you know, you got to figure out how to work with me. 
Yeah. This is how I am. I'm not changing. You work with me. You serve me. Uh, I want you to adjust to me. Uh, yeah. Which I think a lot of, I do think that a lot of leaders would, would not say it explicitly any longer. I think there's probably no, a time in which, no, it's, but it's still said yeah. through other things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, th this is our culture and you just need to adjust to it. Um, yeah. would be an, a, I think a 2023 yeah. version of that yeah. same sentence, you know? And I do believe organizations should have cultures and leaders play a, a rate, a major role in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in defining culture, but primarily by modeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Not by haranguing people, you know, I, I, some of the most grievous abuses, are leaders who, you know, they get a list of what they say the organizational culture is and they harangue people about it and they're the worst violator, you know. Uh, I think, too, that plays into whether or not you set, and again, uh, I think that if I asked someone a multiple choice question, everyone would get it right. But really looking at your organization and asking, did you set a culture based upon a personality, like a person? Yeah or a set of values that can be lived fully like external of your, your personality-based leader. I think this is most egregious in churches where we oftentimes have the head pastor is also the figurehead of the church. Um, like, I mean, yeah. literally on stage every week, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that needs to change necessarily. I'm just saying that because those two things seem to go hand in hand so closely, it becomes very difficult to generate a culture that isn't just, you yeah. know, it's like if, if I started some larger church, you know, it would just become, yeah. you know, it'd be very easy for it to be the Phil show where everyone, I don't know, wears plaid and drinks coffee. That's actually good. I don't know. You, you get what I'm going with this. <laughs> like, I, it's just easy to create individualized culture, even when you have something on your wall in your lobby. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's much easier to market a person as the iconic representation of your organization than it is to um, really hold up Jesus as the iconic representation of your organization. Um, because well, Jesus doesn't sell, <laughs> <laughs> right? Doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you. We just have to fight what naturally accrues to us. We have an, we, we have an idolatrous culture. And uh, if we're not careful as leaders, we can cooperate with that idolatry without even realizing it. We can unconsciously cooperate with it. I feel like I just need to like get a good cup of tea and go on a walk and think about that. For a little while. Well, because it, it happens so sub subversively. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, it, it happens so subversively, I think. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are the most, I know I keep coming to come into this question. I'm really coming to this question because I'm, I'm searching my own heart. <laughs> so yeah. my, I guess my, like, what are the ways like for those of us who are earlier on in our journey and we want to avoid you know this, Ralph, nobody, nobody, not nobody, very few people who follow Jesus step into a leadership role 
because they're like, I just really want to give in to all the idolatrous like elements of my culture and just become a tyrannical authoritarian leader who acquires power and money for myself. Like, nobody woke up, they, right? They, they, it's these little itty bitty steps that I, I and other people take because we love Jesus. We value Jesus. We really want to spread the gospel and create disciples. Like more and more, I'm more convinced that to the best of our fallen hearts, in this redeemed nature, a vast majority of people really have good intentions, but uh, there's just a lot of lack of wisdom. And I think that's a whole conversation. I think it's sometimes lack of wisdom because we, we do very poor and long-term mentorship. Uh, we've decided that everyone needs to get broken off into their own groups versus, <clears throat> you yeah. know, the worst idea, this is a side note from Phil, the worst idea you can do is take a bunch of young adults and go make a young adults group or a bunch of kids. Like just, they need, I need people who have been like, you know, 30, 40 years my senior to yeah. to love me and okay well well ralph do that for me please what are some of the pitfalls that i should be looking for here i am my early 30s stepping into leadership roles mentoring people discipling people what are some of the things i need to be searching for in my own life and to weed out uh to weed out uh, well let me let me look at it another way what is one thing that you need to do is cultivate aggressively the the people or persons that will tell you the truth about yourself. Um, it's easy to isolate yourself from people who won't be truthful to you. You need people that will hold up the mirror and show you what you're really like. You know, there's a lot written in leadership literature about self-awareness. Um, I think self-awareness comes by other people holding up a mirror to you, not by you sitting over in a corner contemplating. Mm. Um, so I think that's a core discipline. And then again, I just can't say enough about the intentionality of um, distributing authority and responsibility. Uh, it's easy to distribute responsibility. We call that delegation. But mm -hmm. um, most people don't delegate much authority. Um and uh, it's, it, you know, it feels good to retain it because then you, you know, you can control and, you know, and, and you can have this subtle way of letting people know that you really are superior to them. Yeah. Uh, so, so if you can, if you can work on, on those two things, again, I think uh, there's, there's periodic self-inventories, prayer days, and things like that, where you just lay yourself before the Lord. Most of us get placed in leadership because we're gifted. And, uh, and that's a, I mean, it's God's gift. It's grace. We've been given it. So we, we shouldn't despise it, but we have to be good stewards of it. And part of good stewardship of it is not to let our giftedness deceive us into thinking that that's our virtue. Hmm. Hmm. I feel like, you know, as a podcast host, I'm supposed to have some reply, but honestly, I, I just feel like I need to think about that for a little while. And I think that's a very beautiful image, by the way, in a time where self-awareness is really being promoted. And I think generally a positive thing, the fact that that self-awareness comes from community. Ah, and, yeah, you Indeed. know, we yeah. we consistently want to individualize everything. Yeah. And self-awareness seems like the most individual thing. It's in its name. Yeah. 
but yeah, one of the losses I grieve as much as any loss I've had in my life is my best friend for 40 years died in, in 2011. And, Mm -hmm. um, he from all the way from my twenties to my sixties was a person who could say to me, boy, get in here and close (laughs) the door. We need to have a talk. I, I can't tell you the value that was in my life. He was my best friend, but he was also a person who could really uh, give me a talking to if I needed it. What a gift. I really do mean it. I'm praying that everyone listening to this podcast, that the Lord will send them someone like that. Yeah. I'm thinking of a few people like that in my own life who, uh, I, it's so funny. Most of my not all, but many of my most beautiful moments of growth in the kingdom of God come from someone being so frustrated with me that they're essentially, uh, you know, kind yelling at me. Like they're not really yelling, but like (laughs) they're essentially, you know, they're trying to like get this through your skull, Phil, you know, and uh, by God's grace. You go in leadership, the fewer (laughs) people will, will talk to you like that. What a shame. Yeah. Should be the opposite, shouldn't it? Very, yes, because you have, yes, yeah, oh my God, because you're going to be, in some ways, you're going to be held to a higher level of account. Yeah. And so I want more people in the body of Christ coming around me and keeping me uh, holy and accountable and 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 uh, pure to the best of our ability, right? Because if I'm going to stand before, I think, Ralph, tell me if you think I'm wrong. We just, I think a big part of our, of our lack of radical leadership and other things, but we'll focus on leadership now, is I don't know if we genuinely, at our deepest core levels, believe that we will stand before God. Uh, yeah, or, yeah, that, that along with the uns- unbelievable, unspeakable mercy that we're going to see from the Lord, uh, also, you know, his character is going to require things to be put right. And for truth to be told about us, and uh, that's pretty severe, at least speaking for myself. Yikes. Me too. I have no idea what it's going to look like on that day when all the things that were said in, in the dark you know, come to the light. Uh, I have no idea what that's going to look like. And I'm confident in the grace and mercy that God has prepared. You know I mean, but, but yeah, I mean, I... I have so I'm only 32 and I have so many things, Ralph, that I already know, you know, I, I'm going to be so ashamed when they come to light, you know, and, and just the repented sins and a lot of things from my younger years and all the things, but, but my own thoughts are oftentimes the very things that are most evil. Um, and God help and, us. And I wish I could tell you that it gets better. It does, right, Ralph? Yeah. It does. <laughs> Oh. So many years, so many years older. Um, I would say I'm more grieved today about my brokenness than I was in my by far than I was in my 30s. Yeah, you know what's funny too. Tell me if this continues. The older I'm getting, I think objectively, at least my wife, who I trust her opinion, and she's very close to me. My wife tells me that I'm living holier. You know what I mean? Like, like my life is just generally more pure. And, and, and yet I feel I'm more cognizant. I'm more conscious 
of not only my sins, but the depth, the yeah. depth of the cost of the cross. Ralph, um, I know we have to wrap up here. Uh, I just want to say one more time. I don't think I actually said it explicitly, but I'll just say it to you and all of our listeners. Uh, Servant of All really was a blessing to me. I, I don't remember who the blogger was, uh, but whoever said that it's one of the books that needs to be on a pastor's bookshelf, I agree. I very much, it is, it is a book that is, it, it's a beautifully small book. And I really mean that as such a compliment because I just feel like some of the best books, A.W. Tozer wrote a lot of just these little books that they don't need fluff. They need truth. And what an amazing book that is just steeped in scripture and uh, just really brought me closer to Christ, even as I was learning about leadership. And, and I just, I'm so grateful that you took the time to, to talk with me today and, and um, I'm praying continued blessings over you. And uh, I'm really grateful for the service that you've done to the church in many different ways, but specifically for me talking with me today and writing this book. So for all of you listening, check out Servant of All um, by Dr. Ralph E. Enlow Jr. And I can't recommend the read enough. Thank you so much for joining me and Ralph on today's conversation on the Living Room Disciple podcast. I'm praying that it was a huge blessing for you as it was for me. Make sure to check the show notes so you can get a link to Ralph's book, Servant for All. Absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Also check out livingroomdisciple.com so you can find out more about our organization and how you can support us on Patreon. It would mean the world to us and it would absolutely help us continue our mission of getting amazing discipleship materials out there to uh, the, the greater world. So thank you so much to Anissa Live for all the amazing production work, to Eric Church for getting this podcast out into the world, and for Daniel Ramirez for doing all the composition of the music for today's episode. And thank you for listening to the Living Room Disciple podcast, where discipleship finds a home.